Good morning. Uh, today's scripture passage will be from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead. Oh, yeah, please stand for God's sake. <laughs> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, um, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2 as we pray together this morning and dive into this terrific passage together. God, we are thankful to be together, to be gathered in your name and for your purposes in our lives. We know, Lord, that you have many purposes, that you have gathered us together for many reasons, But chief among all those reasons is to remind us of the truth that we are about to consider from Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace through faith, and we rejoice in this hope, and we are thankful for these words and what they represent for us and for all eternity. We pray that you would do your work in us this morning by your Spirit, and we ask these things in the name of your Son, amen. At the height of World War I, People were beginning to wonder if this was the war that would bring about the end of the world altogether. At the time, it was known only as the Great War because it involved so many countries. It was difficult to summarize it any other way. But in addition to its sheer size, which the world had never seen before, it also introduced new and terrifying weaponry innovations, which included aircraft and tanks and machine guns and bombs and chemical warfare. It was a global nightmare, and for a while it probably seemed like it really might lead to the end of life itself. But as we remember from high school history class, Germany's allies began to abandon the fight, and suddenly it seemed possible that the war wouldn't go on forever, the world may not end. And then on November 11, 1918, an armistice was signed, and suddenly the fighting stopped, just like that. Germany withdrew from the lands that they had occupied, and people began to rebuild, The threat of destruction had gone. The end of the world itself had come undone. Life persevered, and people everywhere breathed a sigh of relief. 
For those who lived in occupied areas of France and elsewhere on the Western Front, literally everything changed overnight. When they woke up on November 12th, their enemies had fled. Their day of rescue had finally arrived, and they celebrated along with most of the rest of the world. The announcement of the ceasefire was welcomed as wonderfully good news that many had feared would never come because the situation was just so incredibly bleak. The joy that people felt and the relief that washed over them was as significant as it was because they had lived through four years of hell and chaos, unlike anything that humanity had ever seen up to that point. And because the people who were close to that situation were so close to oblivion, their joy was great. It's that kind of relief and the joy that comes with it that Paul has in mind as he writes to the Ephesian church in the passage that we're looking at this morning. It is the best good news delivered to people on the very edge of absolute destruction. And so the joy that it brings is significant. Paul had a close relationship with this church. He had established it and spent a few years of his life in the city teaching and ministering to new believers there. He cared so much about the people there that he wrote them this letter without any specific reason at all. Most of Paul's letters were written to address specific things, troubling reports that he had heard or to outline plans and logistics for future visits. But there's no obvious reason for the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesian church apart from the fact that Paul simply cares about these people. That only happens between people who are close. If you got a handwritten letter in the mail from someone that you know very well for no specific reason or occasion, just, but just because they felt like writing to you, you'd probably feel like that was a very nice gesture. But if you got a similar handwritten letter from someone you barely know, I'm guessing you'd feel differently about that. You might wonder why they had written to you, or what was going on. We know from the book of Acts that Paul is good friends with many who are in this city, and evidently he's written them this letter just to say hi. But woven throughout, we can see signs that Paul is also concerned for his friends. And he uses this letter to remind them of the very heart of the Christian faith that he worried was about to come under attack. Much of his life as an apostle was spent pushing back against one specific false teaching that had found its way into many first century churches. It centered around the idea that in order to become a Christ follower, people needed to obey certain rules or uh, observe certain rites or rituals or otherwise rise to meet some standard. It was a common way of thinking in the first century, and it was Paul's arch nemesis, his mortal enemy. More than any persecutor or anyone seeking Paul's life, his greatest adversary on this earth was the idea that people had to come to Christ a certain way in order to be loved and accepted by him. It is the enemy that Paul has spent the most time trying to defeat. The whole book of Galatians is written to confront Christians who had embraced this way of thinking, which he refers to in that book as a yoke of slavery, an afflicting and burdensome teaching. But despite that, it is a philosophy that many embraced and many still do. It is an idea that is subtle enough that it has made its way into Christian thinking, not just in the first century but in every generation since. Paul sees it 
as antithetical to the heart of Christianity, an insidious threat to the church, and a path not to joy and rest, but to suffering and destruction. At the time that Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church, his campaign against this false teaching was in its third decade, and he does not want it to infect Ephesus. And that, I think, is the main reason that he wrote this letter, to prepare his friends for the philosophers and teachers who will eventually come preaching the idea that people have to earn the approval of Christ in order to truly know Him and His love. Paul dismantles that false teaching in this passage that we're looking at this morning with two points. First, that we are far more sinful than we realize. And second, that God is far more loving than we realize. That's the main idea of this passage, and Paul doesn't waste any time getting into it. In verse 1, where he writes, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's a pretty strong statement. He doesn't say you made some mistakes or you had a few flaws, some skeletons in your closet. He says, everything in you was flawed. There were nothing but mistakes. That may sound harsh, but he goes even further in verses 2 and 3 when he tells these friends of his that they were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. To paraphrase, Paul is saying, before you knew Christ, you followed someone else, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Both of these are euphemisms that refer to Satan himself. There is no sugarcoating this. Paul is telling his friends, people he loves dearly, how bad things really were. Though we often think of life before knowing Christ as a time of neutrality or indifference to Christ, Paul says otherwise. Before Christ, there was allegiance to someone else. These friends of his were actively on the side of Satan himself. That's not the sort of thing we might expect to see in polite correspondence among friends. But Paul isn't just pointing fingers here. He counts himself among the guilty. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We lived for ourselves, set ourselves against God, made Him into an enemy who threatened our passions and our desires. Now, as Christians, for Paul and his friends at Ephesus, that is their history. They were spiritually dead, consigned to God's just wrath, along with all people, Paul is careful to point out, everyone, all of mankind. Paul's goal here is not to make his friends feel bad about themselves or to insult them, but he is trying to help them remember that before they knew Christ, they were helpless and hopeless. Their very nature was set against God. It wasn't a matter of a few bad decisions. It is human nature, fallen at its very core. So it is foolishness to assume that anyone can make themselves good enough for Christ by following some rules or performing some good deeds. That is no more possible than it is for a dead body to give itself life again. It is simply who we are and what it means to be human. 
Paul knows that this is a necessary reminder to give his friends, even if it's blunt language, it is a necessary reminder to give his friends and all people because we are prone to forget it. We often think about this like we think about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. If you've never heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, I'll explain. It's a, it's a mass of trash floating in the North Pacific that has been gathered together slowly, year after year after year after year, by ocean currents. Gradually, over years and years, the patch has grown, and now it is about twice the size of the state of Texas. It is massive, like incomprehensibly big, and pretty much everyone on earth recognizes that it is a problem that we ought to do something about. We tend to think of sin that way, a problem, maybe even a really big problem, but one that we can overcome if we develop a good strategy and commit ourselves to the effort. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch would stop growing if we could convince people around the world to stop putting trash in the ocean, and it could eventually be cleaned up with sufficient effort. It would be difficult but we can wrap our brains around what it would take to do it. And we know that if we really wanted to, we could do it. When it comes to sin, we often think the same way. That with sufficient strategy and effort, we could turn our hearts from greed toward selflessness, from pride to humility, from lust to purity, from envy to contentment. But that doesn't work. It isn't like cleaning up the ocean. That is a massive challenge, but success is conceivable. When it comes to overcoming a fallen nature, it's simply not. It would be less like trying to clean up the Pacific Ocean and more like trying to jump across it. It doesn't matter how sincerely someone devotes themselves to the effort or the strategy that they employ. They are just not going to do it. And that's Paul's point here. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Not sick, not confused, not weakened, dead. In your very nature, dead, powerless to change. Even if we gave it all our effort and devoted our entire lives to it, that path only leads to frustration and despair and hopelessness as we realize after a lifetime of effort that we are as dead in sin as we were on day one. But that does not mean that there is no hope. Paul uses the past tense here. He says, you were dead in sins in which you once walked, among whom we once lived. Something has changed. And where there was once death, there is now life and righteousness and holy new people who are no longer children of wrath by their very nature. The first three verses of this passage point us to an impossible paradox. Though the Ephesians, along with all people, were bound by unbreakable chains, somehow they are now free. What seemed inevitable, the destruction that they feared and thought was inescapable, has suddenly disappeared like that. In a moment, everything changed. The best good news had come. And Paul wants these friends of his to know and rejoice in a God who does the impossible. They were dead in sin. And then Paul says, 
but God in verse 4. Perhaps the most significant two words ever uttered, hope was lost, but God. You were by nature children of God's just wrath, but God. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The immovable object of, God, of, of mankind's guilt has somehow been overcome. The justice of God satisfied. It is such an amazing reversal that we want to know how in the world it came about. That's true anytime we see something we figured was impossible. If we see a magician perform a card trick, the first thing we say is, how did you do that? If we see an incredible goal in a soccer match where the ball literally curves around the defenders and flies into the corner of the net, we ask, how is that even possible? There are reasonable explanations for those things, of course. A magician isn't really doing magic. He's just read a book about card tricks and practiced his sleight of hand. The soccer player has spent years of his life perfecting the specific skills and strength that he needs to make that shot. But God has done something which defies all understanding. He has made life where there was death, changed the very nature of His people so that now they are no longer recipients of wrath, but of grace. Paul explains in verses 4 and 5 how it is that this has come about, what I'll refer to as His means, His motive, and His mode of doing what seemed impossible. First, we read in verse 4 that God is merciful. He looks with compassion on the lowly and the rebel. But Paul goes further. God is rich in mercy. He is not a little merciful. He has it in abundance. He looks at us in our sin and our rebellion against Him. He sees our guilt more clearly than we see it ourselves, yet He does not run out of mercy for us. That has been the hope of God's people from the very beginning. In Deuteronomy 4, when the people of Israel are warned that a day would come when their idolatry and rebellion against God would lead to their captivity in a foreign land, they are reminded that God, even then, would not abandon them. For, we read, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. The mercy of God has always been the hope of His people, not their goodness or their righteousness, not their good deeds, not that they could somehow make themselves acceptable, not their ability to reform themselves or restore what their sins have tarnished, His mercy, and means for saving His work. This mercy is not in short supply. Though our sin is great, His mercy is greater. But why? Why would He show such mercy to such terrible people? Paul has already explained that He, along with all people, were set against God, and they had, in fact, allied themselves with evil. Paul himself oversaw the persecution of Christians. He oversaw the execution of the innocent, and he was an outspoken enemy of Christ. Aren't there some things you just can't come back from? Isn't there a limit to the mercy that God will pour out? No. He is rich in mercy, and He pours it all out. 
because of the great love with which He loved us. That was His reason, the motive for God to be merciful, to spend the abundance of His mercy on lowly sinners like you and me. If we are to understand that love, the love that drove Him to show us mercy, we need to go back to the very nature of God Himself, as we did last week when Bruce preached about the triunity of God. Among the eternal relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love is the elemental feature of God's very nature and character. God did not love the Ephesians or anyone else because they were lovely. Paul makes clear in verses 1 through 3 that there is simply nothing lovely there. God loves because it is who He is at His very heart forever among the Father, Son, and Spirit. It was love that was God's motive to show mercy to rebels. He opens the storehouses of mercy because love is what defines His very nature and always has. It is a love that we can scarcely comprehend, a love that is willing to show mercy to enemies and evildoers who deserved only His contempt. So, we have the means and the motive, God's capacity and His desire to redeem people and rescue them, but we still don't know how it came about until we get to the crowning jewel of this whole passage. God has made us alive together with Christ, we read in verse 5. God has saved His people through a person. The mode of God's salvation is Jesus Christ, His Son, who took upon Himself the sin of His people, our guilt before God, so that in our place, we could also receive His mercy and grace, His love. His Son receives God's just wrath against sin, and then exchanged His sin, sinless life for ours so that we could have new redeemed life in His name. He has raised us up with Him, Paul says in verse 8, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is the ultimate reversal from the depths of God's wrath to the very throne room of His glory. The dead in sin are made alive again, given victory over their own death in the power of Christ. Paul's whole point here is that this is not a reward for good behavior. None of this is earned. All of it is grace. There are people who respond with doubt to the message of Christianity, the message of grace, saying something like, I've made too many mistakes. Or, if you knew my past, you would know that God's love is not for people like me. Or, there's just no way that God would love me. That person is right about one thing. God should not love his enemies, but he does. The person who has those doubts understands something really important. They know that they're a mess, unworthy of love that they rightly deserve God's anger, not His affection. They're right about that. Most of us have a hard time grasping that the same is true of us, that we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, as Paul says in verse 3. We tend to think of ourselves as generally good people who make mistakes along the way, but are overall worthy of respect and honor and God's approval. We often think, well, I'm a better person than my neighbor. I mean, they've made some some really big mistakes, some doozies. 
I don't do anything that I think is wrong, so therefore, I'm a good person. And when I meet him, I'm sure God will say, well done. But our lives and our hearts simply prove otherwise, that we justify ourselves, we overlook our sin, we downplay its pervasive, corrosive, insidious influence in our lives. Even if we have lots and lots of good deeds to our name, if we're willing to honestly look at them, we will see our selfishness and pride underneath them all. And we attempt to make God fit our expectations of Him or our demands of Him by assuming that His standard of holiness extends to right where we're standing. We make a God in our own image who we believe will look at us with satisfaction and approval and then give us what we want from Him. But we overestimate ourselves. We often don't see things as they are, but as we think that they should be. That's true for those who are so racked with shame that they assume God could never love me, and more often, those who think so highly of themselves that they think God could not help but love me. That was the assumption underneath the false teaching that Paul has spent so much of his time confronting. The Judaizers of the first century believed that in order to become one of Jesus' followers, someone would also need to obey the law of Moses. That in order to make themselves acceptable to Jesus, they needed to come to Him with their lives together. But the heart of Christianity says differently. It says we were dead and Christ made us alive. The old saying is true. We contributed nothing to Christ's saving work apart from the sin that made it necessary. We were not looking for Him. We were not reforming our lives in order to come to Him. We did not make ourselves lovely so that He would love us and approve of us. He loved us in spite of the terrible truth, and that is the best good news you will ever hear. One of the interesting things about this passage is that it's actually one continuous sentence in Greek, all ten verses, one sentence. With some different grammatical rules, Paul could get away with the sort of run-on sentence that would sound strange to our ears today, but I mention that to you this morning because I think it highlights something that's really important about this passage. Paul repeats himself twice in this passage. He uses the phrase, dead in trespasses, and the phrase, by grace you have been saved, two times each in one sentence. He doesn't want anybody to miss or to misinterpret what's happening here. He's saying to his friends in Ephesus and to us this morning, remember this and never forget it, so that when people come to you saying that you need to behave a certain way in order to make yourself acceptable to Christ, you'll know the truth. Christ did not love me because of my good works or because of anything lovely in me. There was nothing lovely there. He loved me because He is rich in mercy toward those who deserve His wrath, and so merciful that He gave His life in exchange for mine. Not one of God's people had His act together. Not one of them was good. It was the other way around. And so Paul concludes this passage with a crystal clear reversal of the false teaching that threatens the Ephesian church and all Christians. This salvation, he says in verses 9 and 10, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Christians are not saved by good works. They are saved for good works. Created, as Paul says here, in Christ Jesus. Made into those whose lives and hearts reflect Christ's life and Christ's heart. That does not happen because people woke up one morning and decided to be good people, righteous people, even if their desire was sincere. Instead, Christians are transformed by the very grace that saves us. Transformed beholding the grace that saves us, as Paul describes in his letter to Titus, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, he writes, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's people are shown grace despite their sin, and that grace literally trains them to overcome the sin that they've been forgiven of. We do not come to God as good people. He comes to us in our sin with mercy and love and the atoning blood of Christ, and by grace alone we are saved. That is the gospel, and it is the beating heart of our Christian faith. Best good news, delivered to people who were otherwise destined for destruction. And it flows out of the triunity of God, as we saw last week, and it is the foundation upon which all of the Christian life is built, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. And though there are many ways the gospel affects our lives from day to day, we can observe from this passage that it has two immediate impacts. A vertical one, in the way that it affects how we look at God, and a horizontal one, in the way that it affects how we look at one another. Vertically, And instantaneously, it humbles us before God. Reading this passage, we see that the only things we have to our name are wickedness and rebellion against what is good and holy. We do not come to God with our chest puffed out. We do not declare to Him that He is right to love us. We come with praise for His merciful love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel makes us humble before God, but it also makes us confident. When we stumble in sin, as every Christian does, when we are reminded every day that we had to be raised to new life because we were dead in sin, we remember that God's love does not hang on the condition of our goodness. He did not wait for us to get our act together to love us, and His love for us does not cease when it is revealed that we still don't have our act together. Apart from the gospel, we will remain both proud and fearful. We will look for strength in ourselves, and we will be frightened every time something proves that there is no strength to be found there. With the gospel, we are set free from those chains, and we come to God both humbly and confidently. Horizontally, the gospel changes the way that we look at one another. It eliminates the assumption that some are greater than others. The gospel reminds us that we are all beggars who have been welcomed into the palace of the king. None of us deserves to be here any more than anyone else. It reminds us that none of us were good, so none of us have room to boast, as Paul says. When we see others struggling with sin, Or when they sin against us, we remember 
that our sin against God was greater, and it is forgiven in Christ already. Paul will go on to demonstrate how the gospel is the great equalizer in the passage beginning in verse 11. Brings this church together in the unity of the gospel under the lordship of Christ. No one in the Ephesian church or any church is more deserving of honor or has any room to boast. All are only recipients of grace, and in that we are united as one people who cling to the hope of the gospel together. At the end of World War I, some people thought that the age of warfare had finally come to an end. People even began to refer to World War I as the war to end all wars. And they figured that after such a horrifying experience, years that shocked the world and made them think, we'll never do this again, that humanity had learned its lesson, that we would never do that to ourselves again. But of course, it would only be a couple of decades before an even greater and more horrible war would begin in which even more lives would be lost. We have a tendency to think that we are able to do what is right, to get things right, to work hard, develop an effective strategy, commit ourselves to the cause, and succeed, to learn and grow and ultimately become people of righteous character who God would approve of. But we overestimate ourselves. We are far worse sinners than we realize. But God, He is far more merciful than we realize. In love for us, He makes us alive with Christ, those who were dead in trespasses and sins. That is the best good news that we could possibly hear or build our lives on. Let's pray together. Father God, we rejoice together this morning to remember the heart of the gospel, your love and mercy poured out in the sacrificial death and atoning blood of your Son in our place. We put all all our hope and all our trust in your word and in the person and work of your Son in whose name we have life and are being renewed day by day in the work of your Spirit. We pray that you would keep these truths close to our hearts Protect us from the assumption that we are good people who deserve to be loved and from the fear that your love is less than we need. We pray that you would be at work in us today, pressing the life-giving gospel into our hearts so that we will know it and your love for us more and more. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.